Welcome to the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. My name is Nick Mesmer and I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast. This episode is a recording of a live stream event from a few days ago that was hosted by the Ancient Language Institute. They invited me to be a part of their roundtable discussion about how to learn ancient languages, specifically in light of modern second language acquisition research. The conversation was about two hours long, so we're splitting it up into two parts for the podcast. In this first part, we talk about our backgrounds, the grammar translation method, comprehensible input, and communicative approaches to ancient languages. We hope you enjoy the episode. And we are live. So that was easy. It was just one click. So uh, welcome everyone to our first live stream on learning ancient languages or first roundtable discussion. So I am Jonathan Roberts. I'm the director of the Ancient Language Institute. And we have uh, three other guests here with us to uh, talk about ways in which we can learn ancient languages. Uh, what are some methods that you know different teachers and institutions employ and what we you know we will you know discuss those and then it will be a fairly uh, free-flowing conversation uh, we'll just get started with some introductions so I'll just say a little bit about myself and then we'll just go around so my name is Jonathan Roberts I'm originally from Aguascalientes Mexico so I grew up um, speaking English and Spanish and Spanglish and I did my undergrad at the King's College. I studied politics, philosophy, and economics. And uh, there is where I got started uh, with Latin. So my junior year, I took the Latin two. I, I was too late to take Latin one. So my Christmas break was just studying what, uh, what was studied for, for Latin one. And it was really fun. And knowing Spanish, I got a lot of free, free vocabulary. But then my, my first... Um, venture into teaching ancient languages was while I was a teacher at Great Hearts Academies in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, the Latin teacher had gone off to a, to a law school program, and I really wanted to teach Latin, so I went to the headmaster and I said, hey, can I teach Latin? I will, you know, I will beef up. I will take this Latin intensive at the uh, University of Arizona, which, which is where Colin studied. Uh, he'll say more about that. Uh, and I'll beef up and I'll, I'll, I'll teach Latin um, if, if you're willing to, to do that. And, and, he, and we made a deal. He said, yes, but you also have to teach Spanish <laughs> uh, because that was their first year launching um, their Spanish program. So high schoolers would go on to either continue with ancient languages and study Greek. And then as the stereotype goes, all the trouble students would go and teach Spanish. And after a year of, of doing that, uh, it, was, it was just a sudden realization. So to give you an idea, my Latin students were using Latin for the new millennium. We had really great support. I had really experienced teachers helping me out. And with Spanish, it was kind of a Wild West situation. Nobody had taught Spanish at that school before. I had never seen that textbook that we were using. And it was pretty... It was pretty terrible. It was pretty terrible. And after two weeks, I, I realized if this is so boring for me, if this is destroying my soul, this must be horrible for the students. So we just threw the textbook away and we just read stories. 
my really easy stories. And since we met once, you know, every day for an hour, we could do a lot. So I would use things in the classroom. It's like, okay, how do I explain what's a book? Oh, well, I just pick up a book and say, ah, esto es un libro, right? Very easy. Esto es una espada, right? And so then I would just talk to my students and explain new vocabulary by means of what was around us. And this was just, you know, based on what I thought would be effective and fun. Uh, and then after a year of, of doing this, it was kind of startling because I, I was talking with one of my students after class in Spanish. I was like, wait, we're just having a conversation in Spanish. And he's telling jokes and he's telling me about how he watches soap operas and TV shows in Spanish. But why can't my Latin students do that? <laughs> What's happening? What? What? How did? How did it come to this? Right? How did it come to this? And um, and then that was my last year teaching. But that seed, that seed of well, that just planted a seed in my mind. It's like how come students can make this much progress in Spanish and not in Latin? They're both languages, after all. Right? They're both languages, after all. So. Eventually, that seed would grow into uh, what is now the Ancient Language Institute. So I'll I'll pause. Uh, I'll stop there, and let's hear from uh, from Colin, since since we mentioned our overlap at the University of Arizona. So yeah, tell us about yourself, what you're up to, how you got started with languages. And oh boy, how long do you have? <laughs> No, um, so my name is Colin Gorey. I'm a linguist in private practice, I guess uh, is the best way to put it. I teach courses online for people who are interested in, in learning what makes languages, languages tick. And I make videos on YouTube and stream on Twitch, stuff about linguistics, constructed languages, Old English, all manner of things. Um, overall, my mission is to bring linguistics out of the ivory tower. That's, that's what I say. So I better keep it consistent. That is, that's the mission. I did my undergrad and PhD in linguistics. Um, I was at University of Toronto for undergrad and then down to University of Arizona for my PhD. I, I think I needed a change in the scenery and the weather, um, and I definitely got it in Arizona. Uh, but also, that's not the only reason, don't worry, um, that I went to study there. Uh, in Arizona, there's a, a great there's a great tradition of, of theoretical linguistics, but also um, going into things like like language documentation, like um, uh, like experimental linguistics. So we we married together all sorts of worlds in that department, and it was a great place, a great intellectual environment to to sort of develop. Um, but all that to say is, I focused mainly on linguistic theory. Since I graduated, uh, I've become more and more interested in historical linguistics and in second language acquisition. Uh, which is sort of leads naturally into my current obsession, which is to devise linguistically informed methods of learning and teaching these, learning and teaching languages, especially the ancient ones, especially ones where we don't have any native speakers. Um, there are, there's been a lot written on, on methods of, of, of language pedagogy, but ancient languages are always in a, a bit of a special case and we're more hamstrung than normal uh, because we don't have we, a, we don't have native speakers, but B, we often don't have a great variety of pedagogical materials, especially once we get out of uh, Latin and um, to a lesser extent, uh, ancient Greek. We are, we're really limited in terms of the resources, in terms of the readers, in terms of the textbooks, in terms of uh, things like apps, although Biblingo is making a difference in, uh, 
in in that regard. And so we have to get creative and we have to really start to look into how best to do it because really we don't have time to waste. So I've been taking all of this approach um, to teaching old English. That's my my current project. Um, but yeah, I've plappled on enough. Uh, maybe we could go here from uh, from Nick since I mentioned Biblingo. Yeah, that's right. Nick, yeah, tell us about, about yourself and Biblingo, what you're up to. Um, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Um, just really glad to be a part of this. So I, I appreciate the invitation. Um, so my name is Nick Mesmer. I am the co-founder of Biblingo, which uh, is primarily a software program for learning biblical Greek and Hebrew. Uh, we do offer live courses and have a podcast as well, but our primary focus is, is the software program. And really our, our mission as a company is to make uh, the biblical languages more accessible and easier to learn. And there's really two big pieces to that. One is methodology. So we're trying to take the most up-to-date research in the field of second language acquisition and apply it to ancient languages responsibly. And number two is leveraging technology. Uh, so a lot of people are still using textbooks to learn um, ancient languages, which is much less common when it comes to modern languages. So we want to take some of the best of the technology that's being applied to modern languages and apply it to, to biblical Greek and Hebrew. So a bit um, about my personal background. Uh, I At this point in time, I consider myself mostly a hobbyist when it comes to languages and language acquisition. Well, and it's part of my job, but uh, I do have some educational background. So um, I started studying Greek and Hebrew in my undergraduate program. So I was I took Attic Greek in a classics department at the University of Georgia and Biblical Hebrew in the religion department. Um, and then, and I, I took a bit, good bit, four semesters of Greek and two of Hebrew. Um, and then after that, I went on and did a, a master's in Biblical exegesis at Wheaton College, which is basically just um, a program that's focused on studying Biblical texts in the original languages. So uh, that's kind of my background, mostly a traditional approach. Um, which we'll talk more about what I mean by that. And maybe that's not even the best thing to call it. But um, uh, after that, basically, my co-founder for Biblingo, Kevin Grosso, who also has been a very close friend of mine for a long time and happens to be my brother-in-law, um, he started talking to me about how I had learned Greek and Hebrew all wrong and that he's learning a different way to do it. At the time, he was in uh, Jerusalem getting his PhD in Hebrew and also doing some of the what people call immersive programs for Greek and Hebrew um, and was just advocating those methods. And when he would come back to visit is when I started to notice that he might be onto something because he didn't just seem to be better at Greek and Hebrew than before, but something fundamentally different seemed to be going on in his head when he was reading these texts. And uh, it kind of came to a climax when he was at my house and he got on the phone for a weekly meeting that he had with a friend of his where they would just speak in biblical Greek and Hebrew. And I had just never seen anything like that before. So I was like, okay, I think you're onto something. And so a little while later is when we, we um, started Biblingo, which he had been planning for quite a long time, but uh, brought me on board. So um, yeah, so again, for the past, I would say two to three years, I've been a bit more of a hobbyist and especially in the um, kind of approaches that we'll we'll be talking about today so. excellent great yeah. thank you and last but not least we have carter ennis all the way from rome 
Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> about yourself and um, what you're up to and and all that good stuff. Yeah. So my name is Carter Ennis, currently in Rome for the summer, just traveling. Um, as Jonathan mentioned before we got on, I am fresh off the press of getting an undergraduate degree at New St. Andrews College, um, where I got a degree in liberal arts and culture, which was really awesome because it exposed me to um, Latin, ancient Greek, and biblical Hebrew at this point. Um, but my language journey begins before that. Um, in high school, kind of the beginning of high school, I, um, well, first of all, I was always kind of interested in the language and how it worked, but I didn't really know anything about how to learn it. And one Christmas, um, my family got the Rosetta Stone for German, <laughs> and that kind of started it. So I, but my thinking was, Everybody who learns languages in high school, and I've, you know, you know, have friends who take Spanish in high school or whatever. Um, nobody comes out of high school saying, "Yes, I can speak Spanish or I can speak German," <laughs> and that always kind of frustrated me. So, as a determined high schooler, I was like, "I'm going to learn German. I'm really, really going to learn it, like from beginning to end." Um, and so that kind of started the journey where I poured myself into hours and hours and hours, and it became a hobby of learning German. Um, I got um, a lot of different materials from all over the internet. I kind of ditched Rosetta Stone pretty early on. Um, but I began looking at stuff by Stephen Krashen, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. <laughs> um, um, and that kind of started um, going down the, the line of just watching videos, listening to podcasts, reading so much stuff, and learning through input. So I was um, taking in so much German. And throughout high school, that led to other language experiences, primarily Spanish and French. Um, to this day, Spanish is probably my best uh, language out of those three, just because I have friends who can speak Spanish, and I've gone to Mexico, and I can speak Spanish okay at this point. So um, something is working, at least, <laughs> in, in that regard. But by the time I got to college, um, I had the unique opportunity to study with um, Tim Griffith, who's awesome. He's done um, a lot of work with Latin in particular, with Pictodicta, uh, which is a software that we use at Ancient Language Institute, um, teaching Latin through kind of this living method. And that was a super great opportunity. I'm super happy I didn't have to go through the <laughs> grammar translation method of learning Latin. And it was super fun. By the time second year came around, we were doing classes all in Latin, lectures all in Latin. We were talking about the Aeneid, reading it all in Latin, and it was super fun. That was then followed by doing Attic Greek with the amazing Joseph Tipton, um, who's also a great language yeah. guy as well. <laughs> um, I'm kind of spoiled here, yeah. Um, so that was super fun. And then just last year, I started doing Hebrew, kind of going into my uh, master's degree. So currently, I am a master's student at NSA as well, doing kind of a cooperative program where I'm doing a theology and letters master's degree with a applied linguistics degree. So that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, you keep you keep busy. Yeah, you're also teaching for us, for yes. the Language Institute. And yep. you teach a wide range of students. So just tell us, <laughs> tell us about that. 
Yeah, I forgot to mention. So I am a Latin and Ancient Greek fellow at ALI as well, Ancient Language Institute, and I have done uh, a wide range at this point, um, middle school, high school, adults. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I do. I've been doing that for about a year, and it yeah, has been yeah. so yeah, from from really young to folks who are almost retired or even retired. Um, yep. So great, great. Well, uh, I'll just get us started with some questions, and if you know, folks are watching, and uh, feel free to chime in, ask questions, give comments, and we'll try and incorporate them as as appropriate. So let's just start with a kind of imaginary character that might want to learn an ancient language and decides to go on to Facebook, right? Goes, goes up to Facebook, goes to a, goes to, to some Facebook group. And it's like, how, how, be, how can I best learn, you know, ancient Greek or biblical Hebrew or Latin? And then, the, and then there's this, this thread war, right? Somebody says something bad about the grammar translation method and then boom, it all explodes. This, this probably happens. I think this happens. I think this is almost a true story. <laughs> and, and so when um, when this imaginary character wants to wants to learn a language, he, he hears a lot about this grammar translation method, natural method, direct method, and then wants to figure out, well, what? How do I do it? Now, I've heard all these things; they're just being thrown at me. Uh, I want to figure out more about what these are. Um, so let's let's start with grammar translation method. What is the grammar translation method? How does it work? What what do students do? Um, what's going on there? So any any of you feel free to jump in and we'll we'll just get get started. The grammar translation method. Everyone's everyone's favorite thing to hate, right? Um, the grammar translation method is is a kind of an it's an interesting uh, it has an interesting history because it's often called as Nick alluded to the traditional method, but it's actually not that traditional. It's uh, kind of the product a creature of the nineteenth century, um, maybe a little bit be, uh, before. Um, the grammar translation method aims to teach a language um, as a type of explicit knowledge. So, with the grammar translation method, there are two halves as the name sort of suggests there's a grammar half and the translation half the grammar half is um where you're led into trying to understand all of the facts about the language that are relevant so these are things like verb charts uh these are things like rules for using different cases you know you can get in in latin or ancient greek you always see this exhaustive list of the different uses uses of the cases the date of a reference this kind of thing um, and you learn all these rules and you memorize all these tables, and then the translation side is there to give you some practice with those, with using those things. So you take those rules which you've learned, you now know the language, right? So translate some things. And in theory, it sounds great, but in practice, it just doesn't tend to work. And this is mainly the objection to it, <laughs> which I think is a pretty convincing one. It just doesn't seem to produce um, produce people with the kind of knowledge of the language that uh, that they want. And so this is where, in the 20th century, the tides of grammar translation start to recede and other things start to come into, come onto the scene. Yeah, I would, I would mention that the grammar translation method is somewhat difficult to talk about because 
It really was prominent before anything that could be considered like an academic field around second language acquisition really emerged in any significant way. And so since that field that we call second language acquisition has emerged, um, since it, it did emerge, um, the grammar translation method had kind of fallen out of fad for quite a long time. And so no, no really scientific research into the method has been done in, or not as much substantial research has been done on it. So defining it is difficult. Talking about um, any quantitative data on how effective it is, is difficult. Um, there is some of that, but not as much as other methods. So it's difficult to kind of pin down in that way. At the same time, I think that says something about it, that since this discipline has emerged where people devote their entire lives and careers to studying how language is learned effectively, um, no one has really given it the, as much of the attention and time as some of these other methods. So I think I think that's significant. But um, yeah, in, in this field of second language acquisition, I think most scholars would say pretty outright that uh, the grammar translation method is, is just not taken very seriously as a holistic approach in the field. So It's interesting, though, if I can jump in to say that despite the fact that it gets no real attention in the field of second language acquisition, in the practice of second, la second language acquisition, it's all over the place. <laughs> so there's a huge disconnect. And I think this is something that we see over and over again um, in the field of SLA. I'll just shorten it. Second, mm -hmm. second language acquisition, SLA. Um, in the field of SLA, where we have uh, a disconnect between the kind of research that's being done and the kind of application of that research in actual classrooms or yeah. in writing textbooks. Yeah, I have a, a quote that's really relevant to that from um, Richard, Richards and Rogers and Approaches and Methods in Language Teaching. You may have cited them in, in an article you wrote. I don't know if that's where I got it. But they say these texts, referring to textbooks devoted to the grammar translation method, are frequently the products of people trained in literature rather than in language reaching uh, language teaching or applied linguistics. Consequently, though it may be true to say that the grammar translation method is still widely practiced, it has no advocates. It is a method for which there is no theory, there is no literature that offers a rationale or justification for it, or that attempts to relate it to issues in linguistic psychology or educational theory. So just that disconnect between practice and, and theory. Yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the ambiguity that you were mentioning, Nick, kind of reminds me of when the Supreme Court was trying to define pornography. And it's like, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> and same with the grammar translation method. And probably one of the one one way to kind of get get clear in our heads what it what it is, is kind of getting a picture of what it looks like. Uh, so a textbook, right? You pick up a textbook and it's going to do the exact same things that Colin uh, mentioned. It's going to give you a grammar principle. It's going to give you a vocabulary list, <clears throat> and then it's going to give you some sentences to translate. And um, usually they're like really small sentences without any context. Uh, and I've always found those sometimes to be really difficult uh, because without context, it's like, oh, man, this could mean like seven things. Um, so it, it, it seems like it would be easy, right? But it's like, oh, no, this is actually pretty hard. Um, and, and then if you're lucky, well, we'll see if, it, if you're, if you're lucky, there's a passage for you to read, right? And then there's an additional vocab list that's almost as big as a reading. 
And so students um, typically don't get the experience to re of reading successfully in that sort of layout. Um, and that's that's very, very common if you look at <clears throat> textbooks such as Wheelock. Um, Latin for the New Millennium is probably the be one of the best, better ones in that stream of, of texts. Um, so all that said, I don't know if uh, uh, Carter, you want to add anything about? Yeah, I was just thinking too. I mean, it's interesting that you guys mentioned this disconnect between kind of the linguistic theory behind the second language acquisition and kind of what's practically happening in the classroom a lot of times. And I think there's, I mean, a lot of times the problem with Latin teaching is that the teachers have no idea how to do the natural method too. Like you have people who, so we have to follow the structure of a class over the semester. And the only way to do that is to follow the textbook, kind of each chapter going through and thought, you know, and it, and it, it makes it really hard. And I think it, it makes it really hard to, to diverge from that. Um, and I've talked to people who I actually, <laughs> a lot of my, what a part of the people I teach sometimes are, um, Latin teachers at classical schools. Um, and they're kind of tasked with like, okay, how do I take what you're telling me from Familia Romana or whatever, which is a Latin book, and how do I apply it to a classroom? And so you have to kind of have to like teach that to people too, because people don't know because they grew up with grammar translation and, or that's what, that's what they were taught. So that would be, I mean, I think it's probably a big reason why there's kind of a disconnect too. Yeah, I think that's a great point is seeing the disconnect. I think it's important to ask, well, why then are so many people using this method for teaching and learning? Um, and I think there's a handful of reasons we could talk about. I might just mention a few and maybe we circle back to them if we, if we decide to move on. But uh, one that I, I've just heard explicitly is um, um, one, one person referred to it as lock-in, which is a, a situation where you just continue to do what has been passed on to you or what you're used to or what you have the infrastructure resources to do. Um, in fact, I, as part of my job, I'm on a almost daily basis meeting with uh, university and seminary teachers trying to convince them to use Biblingo in their schools. And uh, an extremely frequent um, response that I get is something along the lines of, well, this seems like a much better way to learn the language, but it just doesn't fit with what we've been doing, or it doesn't fit with kind of the learning outcomes that that our students have to meet, such as parsing and translation and things like that. Um, so, so that idea of lock-in, a couple of things I hear frequently as well, and I think it's important um, to try to be as fair as possible to advocates of, of the grammar translation method and, and why they use it, but um, I think two very big uh, reasons. Number one is they see a difference in the goals that they have for learning an ancient language versus a modern language. So usually the goal is something like reading, um, which we probably should talk more about even what we mean by reading. Um, and the other big thing is is they see it as impractical to do, do something more like you do with modern languages. Um, with, to do that with ancient languages because we don't have native speakers or things like that. Um, and so in a lot of ways, people use the grammar translation method because they feel like that's all they have. Um, so beyond that, there, there, there certainly are people who probably think it is a, a, an effective method and that's why they use it. But I think there are some other reasons as well. 
Yeah, There's another. Oh, sorry. Well, I was just to say that that what Nick, what you were describing, is also called in economics path dependency. It's just like the the path has been laid, and you just just so hard. And with like, is it called Betamax? It was the pre-VHS video device. I don't think I've ever seen it. Uh, I've only heard of it as an example. In I've seen it. <laughs> um, Betamax. So Betamax was actually superior to VHS in different ways. But the, the path dependency in this case is kind of the opposite. We have this idea of progress, right? So the next thing is obviously going to be better. And so VHS kind of replaced Betamax. But here is kind of the opposite. It's like the grammar translation method we're on the grammar translation train, and um, Nick here has to deal with like a hostage situation and, and go in and, and uh, redirect the path. Um, so, uh, Colin, yeah, you were going to say? There's another kind of reason or motivation for using the grammar translation method that comes from, uh, from the discussions in the 19th century, which is that it builds character. Doing this kind of um, this kind of analytical work, it requires discipline. You have to sit down, do the translation. It, it's supposed to build character. And honestly, I think it does. <laughs> I think it does. But if, you know, we have to be honest about what our goals are when we're, when we're teaching a language. Are we primarily trying to teach character? I mean, you could get someone to go out and build a wall, um, you know, right. to, to accomplish the same goal. I would rather uh, grow within them a knowledge of the language that would then allow them to do whatever they want with it. Yeah. So one uh, one question about the grammar translation method: Can it work? Is it possible? Is it possible for it even to work? Sure. I yeah, think I was gonna say, yeah. I've <laughs> I've seen and I've talked to people who are. I mean, it. I think you know. Obviously, everybody's different. So people. Some people like grammar <laughs> and they enjoy it. And I have seen people who are incredibly good at Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, or whatever, who have done it through the grammar translation method. And, you know, they're far better than I'm ever going to be. But those people are usually in the minority. So that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, number one, again, it depends on, it may depend on your goals. So, I mentioned maybe your goal is reading, but then you might need to nuance that more. Is it is it reading fluently, like you read in your native language, and what all does that involve? But a lot of people studying ancient languages, especially the biblical languages, are interested in something like grammatical analysis. Um, so that you know, if that's your goal, then perhaps the grammar translation method could be successful. Um, other other things you have to think about though are that that methods are not these kind of they don't have hard barriers and they're not always mutually exclusive so perhaps some people who are successful using the grammar translation method have accidentally used things that really belong to another method or something like that <laughs> uh, but then ad additionally you know there is a sense in which some people i think a, a minority of people are geared to think in a way that the grammar translation method kind of suits a very analytical almost mathematical kind of mind. Um, but again, I, I think the key thing is, is what are your goals? And of course, a more important question than can it be successful is, is it the most effective and efficient way? Right. But 
So yeah. all that to say that I would answer hesitantly, yes, it, it can work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. A, a lot of nuance. It's possible. Um, yeah, and 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 uh, I think that's a good point. You can, we can imagine someone, and this is probably this, this is probably how it happens that has tons and tons of time, and can just translate and translate and translate and just consume so much content in the target language that they get to be really good. Um, a lot of folks don't have that sort of time, right? Or that sort of stamina. For most folks, it's just they're just going to be bored to death. They're not going to get very far. Um, but so, yeah, I agree. It is possible. Um, now, before we... Yeah, if I can just say one more thing on that, um, because the method is sometimes hard to pin down and define, I, I do often find it's helpful to use analogies. So one I like to use is the analogy of music. Um, so you can learn music in two ways. One, you can like learn to play an instrument. And number two, you can learn music theory. So the grammar translation method and the analogy um, kind of corresponds more so to learning music theory, whereas there's another way of learning a language that is more similar to learning to play an instrument. But I think the important thing is maybe your goal is being a music theorist, again, in which case studying music theory is probably effective. But um, the question is, you know, is it possible for someone to become a skilled mm -hmm. musician by only studying yeah. music theory, like maybe, right? I don't know, but it, it just seems far-fetched. Um, but that doesn't mean the two are entirely exclusive of, of one another. Perhaps learning some music theory could be beneficial to playing an instrument. But again, we'll dive into that a lot more. Right. Yeah, and before we jump into other methods, <clears throat> it just occurred to me that, or was reminded of, um, one of the reasons why people like the grammar translation method some folks even students um especially at the beginning stage is that i think it gives them a sense of security all right because you can see a text in this alien language all these greek characters and then <clears throat> if you can translate it into into english you feel a sense of mastery it's like oh, i did it i know it. Uh, and it and it feels objective right it feels like you really you really figured out what it means and, and now that it's in english things are certain it gives you this feeling of certainty so there's that kind of psychological pull as well i think okay so what what else is there what el what else is there um tell us well are there any other options or are we stuck <laughs> We're not stuck. All right. We're not well, stuck. We have some other options. Show us the way. So there are lots of methods with names and acronyms and things like that. Um, the alternative you can generally think of in terms of a, a universe of, of types of approaches that come back to a particular idea about what is going on with second language acquisition. What is going, what exactly is occurring? Um, and what exactly a language is. So if we take the point of view, this is a, a point of view that comes out of sort of the tradition of cognitive science, that that a language, certain aspects of a language anyway, are a type of knowledge, a type of unconscious knowledge that we have that allows us to, to produce and comprehend the language. Uh, it's the sort of foundation that allows me to string together these words and have them fit into this set of um, 
this, this set of sentences that are called English sentences and for all of you to understand what they mean. Um, it's because I have some kind of knowledge that is allowing me to do this. Uh, and acquisition is the acquisition of this knowledge. Uh, so if we look at language as uh, a type of knowledge, we have to consider how do you acquire, how do you get that knowledge into your head? How do you go from state A without it to state B with it to simplify pretty drastically? Um, and it seems to be with language that the way that it comes in, the way it's acquired is by, um, is by processing what's called input. This is language that, um, that you encounter in in your environment um, that is that is communicating something to you. Um, when we process this input, what are we doing? We're making connections between form and meaning. So linguistic forms come at you, whether this is um, in sound, whether this is gesture, whether this is uh, marks on a page, pixels on a screen, some forms are coming at you. And if you are able to make the connection between the forms and the meaning that these forms correspond to within the language, um, so, you know, mug, m a g, right? Refers to this, by the way, check it out. Um, if you're able to make those correspondences, something goes on and it's still somewhat mysterious exactly what is going on on the, you know, on the, on the uh, level of the brain, but in, on the level of the mind, if we think of it that way, um, you are building up a system of representations, of mental representations of the rules of the language. And the rules of the language as they're represented in your mind are very abstract things. They are not the rules that you learn in a grammar translation style textbook. There's no, there's nothing in here that says dative of reference or, um, you know, in a sentence, you in a question, you have to uh, flip the verb with the set. You know, the, none of this stuff exists. There, these rules exist on a really abstract level. The way, reason we know that is because the there are phenomena in language that are just bizarre and can't can't be explained except by reference to these sort of super abstract rules. Um, so you can say things like, um, "I drank coffee and tea." What did you drink? Coffee and tea. Um, but you can't say, what did you drink coffee and? Why not, right? That seems like it should make sense. It's perfectly comprehensible what you're getting at. But it seems like it just isn't part of English. And linguists go, you know, and spend careers figuring out these super abstract rules. But but we don't, right? Well, I do, because I'm a linguist. But, <laughs> but, um, but people who are acquiring uh, uh, English don't need to do this. Something's doing it for them up here. And it's doing it for them just by processing this, these four meaning connections in the input. So the cloud of approaches that I like to call input-based because they acknowledge this role of the input, um, that form an alternative to the grammar translation method, however we want to define it, um, they come out of that tradition. So they have lots of names. Maybe some of you know some of them. Uh, or have ones that you prefer. I like input-based. You're just very ecumenical. You do you you have a large tent and you, you exactly take, take it from there. <laughs> very good, Nick or Carter. Any uh, thoughts on alternative methods? Uh, any names? Maybe you can give us some names. Yeah, I think 
Um, yeah, I think there's there's a handful of ways to even approach the question. One could be historically looking at different theories or approaches that were given names that kind of popped up uh, throughout history. Um, <clears throat> so this is where we might talk about things like um, one, the grammar translation method, but then the audio lingual method, the direct method, um, the natural approach. So these are all all um, labels that refer to um, pretty established approaches uh, where there were certain scholars who were you know key in coming up with them and things like that. Um, but I, I agree with Colin that there there may be a more helpful way of approaching it is looking at kind of what is the common denominator with a lot of these, um, not necessarily all the ones I, I named, but especially a lot of the newer ones. Um, and I think that, uh, so Colin kind of touched on what you might call implicit knowledge um, <clears throat> is, is key to it. So that would stand in contrast to what you might call explicit knowledge. Um, and explicit knowledge really um, is knowledge of the language that requires meta-language, meaning you have a set of language that you use to refer to the language and how it works. So even, you know, something as simple as the, the label noun is or verb or adjective, that's meta-language that we use to describe language. So that would refer to explicit knowledge, um, whereas implicit knowledge, you don't need any of that to know about the language. So most native speakers of most languages um, maybe have some meta-language, but don't have all the meta-language. So I do think that um, this kind of alternative to the grammar translation method, where the grammar translation method is highly focused on the, on the meta-language, the explicit knowledge, this other option or set of options is very focused on implicit knowledge. That being said, I, I even there would distinguish between method and goal. So I think mm -hmm. the goal of most modern second language acquisition approaches is primarily implicit knowledge of the language. That doesn't necessarily mean that doing explicit learning of, of these things might not contribute to the, the acquisition of implicit knowledge. So there's kind of a fine distinction there. So your method might include, maybe it, it won't, maybe we'll get more into that, but right. I, do th I, I do think this set of approaches is more focused on implicit knowledge versus explicit knowledge. Um, personally, I prefer to use uh, maybe the label communicative approaches um, rather than input based, or I can't remember exactly what you said around input, Colin, but the reason I don't like to use something like input is because I think the input thing label is very associated with Krashen's work. Um, and I think that, so Stephen Krashen was a second language acquisition scholar is, and but a lot of his theories came about in I want to say the 70s or 80s. Um, mm -hmm. And one of his things was called in, um, comprehensible input or input um, hypothesis. And while very, very kind of almost groundbreaking in the field and still so much of the field owes um, a lot to Krashen's work, I think in a lot of ways the field has, has moved on from some of his more strong claims about input um, that being said, I still think input is, is central to these approaches, but I, I try to not make the association with Krashen because of some of the specific claims about input that he made. So I prefer communicative. Um, there are drawbacks to that. 
but I think it's broad enough and gets to the heart of the goal, which is being able to use language and and um, acts of communication, which could be done through four different skills, reading, writing, speaking, and listening. So that's kind of my take. Great. And I think um, some folks, you know, if, if you're, if you've made it this far, you've probably heard of crashing before. Um, so Nick, I think it might be interesting um, for our listeners and viewers to hear more about uh, different, you know, what what were the claims that Krashen was making, and in what ways has the field moved um, beyond them or refined them? You know, uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I wonder if someone could maybe talk a little bit about crashing while I figure out why my laptop is not charging because um, it's about to die. So I maybe need like one or two minutes, but I, maybe someone else could start with crashing. Yeah, it would be great. Uh, Colin or Carter, Carter, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I I consider myself more of a follower of crashing than Nick does probably, but <laughs> um, um I think, as Nick was already talking about, one of the biggest things that is emphasized, I would say, uh, at least just in personal research, is um, comprehensible input. So, right, you're not necessarily thrown into the deep end without being able to understand a word of Latin. So, for instance, you wouldn't start learning Latin with Cicero or whatever. Um, you would kind of begin at a level that you can understand at least, you know, maybe half of it or more, right? And you continually keep getting more and more of that, um, which just in personal experience, I have found is um, very helpful because, um, I mean, it, it, it gets you in to reading and listening, um, and it gets a lot of input in, but um, your progression seems more um, attainable in some ways. So for instance, let me explain. So for instance, when I'm learning um, Spanish or something like that, and this can even apply to Latin. Um, there's nothing like Spanish. <laughs> there's nothing like Spanish. Go ahead. <laughs> um, with learning something like Spanish, I'll, I'll kind of start off my journey, let's say, if I'm going to start learning Spanish with, um, this is what I've done in the past, is kind of, I'll take some video, some interview, something like that, and I'll listen to it. I'll have a word of what's being said. Okay. So let's say my goal is to try to get there. I go back and I'm like, okay, so let's start with something really easy. And over the months of studying or years even, it has been super encouraging because as I go through the, you know, steady progress of getting more and more input, that's a little bit harder each time. I'll keep, you know, jumping back to that original video. I'm like, okay, Ooh, I can understand about 50%. <laughs> oh no, I can understand about 70. Until by the end, I'm like, okay, I can understand basically everything here. Um, that's super encouraging for me um, just to kind of like, start with really easy stuff, get to the harder stuff, um, and kind of have a goal in your mind. Um, so that's kind of one of his biggest things is starting with um, stuff that's, you know, stuff that you can understand, even if it's not fully, but at least partially. And I think another thing, if I'm not mistaken too, and you guys can 
comment on this, obviously, is, is novelty. So the idea that you have to um, introduce new, new content, basically, um, which I think solves the problem of getting bored really easily because <laughs> um, you want to kind of keep it fresh and you want to be looking at new stuff so you're not just like, okay, oof, here we go again. Um, and so that can be really helpful too. And it helps motivate you to, you know, keep keep um, keep learning the language, getting more input and stuff like that. So I don't know. I That's kind of just like from what I've seen, kind of two of his biggest things. I don't know if you guys want to specify those anymore. I'm by no means an expert, so. <laughs> yeah, no, th thanks for jumping in there. I figured figured out the problem um, <clears throat> with my charging, so I'm good. Um, yeah, I'll say a little bit about Krashen. Uh, number one, again, I, I really want to emphasize how important he is in the field and, and his contribution. So um, Carter brought up the idea of comprehensible input, which I think is still very fundamental. It, it's really the basis of a lot of what we do in Biblingo. And, and like Carter said, it's the idea of um, the best way to acquire really like new things in the language, whether vocabulary or grammar, grammatical constructions is through um, input, which means reading or listening, um, specifically input that's comprehensible um, so you can understand it. Um, defining comprehensible can be difficult. Um, Krashen used a formula called I plus one where I is what you already know of the language and one is again, some like, not very specifically defined new thing of the language. So it doesn't necessarily have to be only one new word, but it's just one small piece. So that being said, the input should be mostly known to you. And his theory is that that's the most effective way to acquire new pieces of the language. That wholeheartedly agree with. Um, some of the things that I think um, the field has critiqued him more heavily on is so number one is the role of input. So he not only said that input is necessary, but that it's sufficient for acquiring a language. Um, and while some scholars, SLA scholars, I think would agree, I think many wouldn't agree with specifically the sufficient part. I think most would probably agree that it's necessary, um, but many would disagree that it's sufficient. But even bigger than that is um, he, he would say that this input approach, um, or it, sorry, not this approach, but getting input in the language is not only necessary and sufficient, but the most effective way. Um, and again, I'm, that's where I think the field has really, um, would really depart is that um, a lot of scholars and approaches would say that while input is necessary and really important, um, output is also very effective and important. So Krashen, um, had what is often called the silent period, where he said that learners of a language from the start should not try to produce any output in the language. They shouldn't speak or write at all for this initial period. Again, it wasn't said, I think it usually, I think he said around when you acquire 500 words is where you might be start producing. Uh, it would, I think he said usually six months or something like that. But the idea is that output the ability to produce output would kind of naturally arise from getting a lot of input. So while again, maybe it would naturally arise in that way, I would question if if um, perhaps a more effective and efficient way would be to introduce output earlier on in the process. Um, 
there's some other things. Uh, another big hypothesis of his was the monitor theory or hypothesis um, that kind of talked about the role of explicit grammar. Um, and he basically um, reduced the role of explicit grammar or explicit knowledge of the language to um, kind of checking you, that your output is correct. So when you were about to say something, you would kind of use some rules that you know to like make sure you're being accurate. Um, again, I would question, not only would I question, but I think the field questions if that's the only role of explicit um, grammar. And the last thing that's pretty fundamental to his approach is um, a lot of his theories were based on an assumption that L2 learning or learning a second language is very, very, very similar to L1 or learning your your first language. So his approach, kind of all these sets of hypotheses he's had are, are often referred to as the natural approach. And so kind of at the, at the core of it is that learning a second language most effective, to do it most effectively is to do it like you learned your first language naturally. Um, and I think, again, while there's a lot to that, I think the field acknowledges a bigger difference between the two um, and that undercuts some of his hypotheses. One thing that's interesting about the field of second language acquisition and basically <laughs> applied linguistics and all of linguistics is that um, it very rarely speaks with one voice on these matters. And one of the things that it does more or less say with one voice in the SLA world is uh, about the importance of input, about the, as Nick said, this is something that's necessary. Um, it's, I think, essentially all or almost all mainstream uh, theories of second language acquisition acknowledge the uh, central role of input. Where they differ is, is it enough? Uh, is Do you need anything but input? So that, this Nick alluded to as well, or, or actually more than alluded to, said, said explicitly. There's also talk about what happens. So we have explicit knowledge, we have implicit knowledge. What's the relationship? This is uh, what Nick was in, uh, introducing about the monitor hypothesis. There's still debate as to what the relationship between explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge is, can explicit knowledge cross over into implicit knowledge? Mm. Not sure. Um, the field the field argues about this. Um, there are other things like explicit teaching. Is explicit teaching, can it give you implicit knowledge? So explicit versus implicit teaching and learning. Um, the, 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 there's, uh, when we're talking about terminology, uh, communicative approach, I think, is a really, really good one. The danger I've found with it is that sometimes people take it to mean we are teaching you to communicate. And so you get things like phrase lists, like here are the seven things you have to say at a restaurant, here are the seven things you have to say at the post office. Um, whereas communicative is really about um, the context in which we, uh, we are exposed to input. It seems, for whatever reason, that we need to be in this communicative, communicative context to be processing the input in the way that leads to the acquisition of this implicit knowledge. So out of context things, and here we're going back to the, uh, the grammar translation, you know, punching bag, but out of context phrases that we're translating don't seem to trigger this because they're not communicating anything to us. They're just example sentences or sampled dialogues or, you know, the phrase book of things to go um, say at the post office. You're not at the post office. <laughs> you're in a classroom or you're sitting at your desk with um, with a book. When you're sitting at your desk with a book, that's your context. And you're reading the book, that's communicating to you. 
you're reading about the, the something that's happening in the book. There's some there's something that's trying to that you're trying to get, and it's in these contexts that the work of acquisition seems to to happen. And so I think that's the strength of the the term communicative, as just as long as it's kept in mind that it's not a, necessarily about let you know let's pretend we're at the post office all the time. Um, yeah. So communicative and input based. I think those are those are two two terms that 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 work really well together. Maybe we could just say communicative input based. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Nick, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Nick. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really helpful. And I certainly think there are drawbacks to to the term uh, other other. So to to that um, idea, you talked about context. So you could even zoom in within the communicative approach. And there are very specific approaches, like you said, that actually would hold that um, to learn the language most effectively, you need to do so in these contexts that at least simulate real world, world scenarios. So I think one is called like task-based language learning. So you're learning the language in the context of performing tasks. Someone tells you to do something in the language and you do it. To try to make it more authentic is really the um, word that's used a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I, I actually don't think that kind of authenticity of the situation is as important as it's often made out to be. And so, therefore, I don't think it's essential to what I call a communicative approach. I think the what I see as core to the communicative approach is um, is the the focus on meaning rather than the focus on um, the form of the language, how that meaning is. It's more focused on the meaning than how the meaning is, is occurring. Um, but that even has to be nuanced because people, for example, who use the grammar translation method would say, of course, I care mostly about the meaning. That's what I'm trying to get at. But um, the point is that to be focused on the meaning at any given point in time that you're processing the language, there are certain minimum thresholds that have to be there. One, for example, is the threshold of how much of the language you know or of, of the text you know if we're talking about reading so that's where comprehensible input comes in but the point is that if you if you don't know enough of what's there you can't be focused on the message you you must be focused on the form um so there are ideas brought in from like cognitive psychology that say that we only have so much cognitive capacity to use when we're processing language and if you're you if you have to use too much of that processing power to think about the form of the language or the words that you don't know you 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 must take your focus off the meaning so um, another minimum threshold is speed so the speed at which you can process so if we're talking about reading if you can't read fast enough or if you can't process the text fast enough you can't be focused on the meaning um, so that's what i mean by meaning focused not necessarily that your goal is to understand the meaning, but that at any given point, when you're engaging the language, you are focused on the meaning. Um, that's what I mean by meaning focus. And I would say being meaning focused is really the essence of any sort of communicative approach. Yeah. Another uh, kind of image that is close to what you were talking about, Nick, is <clears throat> like beginning students, sometimes they can find it hard to both read out loud and understand because um, again, they're initially, right, when they're reading out loud, they might just be focusing on how does this sound and trying to try to focus on that and on meaning at the same time can sometimes be a bit much. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that, that sounds, that sounds right. Yeah. 
Yeah, sorry. Um, maybe I should not say so much, but that, that's a really good point. And and actually, um, so when I'm talking about that being meaning focused, um, the concept of fluency is really important. Is you you have to have a, a certain measure of fluency with the language to be able to be meaning focused. So those thresholds I talked about relate to fluency. But um, some really interesting research in the field, um, actually mostly in the cognitive kind of psychology part of the field, is on how fluency with the with um, the kind of more fundamental processes involved in in processing language are um, necessary for developing more like macro fluency. So fluency in phonics, which means associating like letters with sound, is necessary for being fluent at reading. So as you said, if if you can't look at the letters and automatically know or process the sound associated with it, if you're not fluent at that, then you're not going to be able to be fluent at reading because you're going to be using too much of your cognitive power to just make that that letter sound connection. So that's exactly yeah what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's a an interesting difference in um that's been brought out in some of the literature about talking about the the knowledge of language, which is the mental representation, um, which is acquired by input. But then there is the real-time use of that knowledge, translating that into sentences making that available to, to comprehend what you hear. Um, these are things which don't seem to work in the same way as the building up of that implicit knowledge. These to, seem to be things that are more like skills. Uh, and so they, they develop in ways that are more that, that skills develop. So by things like practice. And so this is where it can get a bit, a bit tangled because you can say, well, in the strict input, like if, if you're Stephen Krashen, for example, uh, and you're thinking about a very strong version of the input hypothesis, in, input is uh, necessary and sufficient, what use is practice? I, I'm not attributing this to, to Stephen Krashen, but if you took a really literal view of that, um, of, 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 of that hypothesis, what use is practice? This, there's no point. All you need is input, right? But it seems to be that we actually do get faster at reading when we practice, when we read more. So what's going on there? Well, there are all sorts of different skills that are um, kind of orbiting around this central, uh, this central knowledge of language that have to do with, with applying that knowledge. And these seem to get faster when we practice them. And these can be quite specific. So if we think of um, in, our, in our first languages, there are all sorts of skills that we had to learn. There are skills involving reading. That's probably the, the most obvious one. That doesn't come at the same time as the rest, as the other aspects of language. When we talk about second language acquisition, we're talking about reading, writing, uh, listening, speaking. First language acquisition, we get two of those a lot faster than the other two, right? And sometimes we don't get the other two. They're not even necessarily, they don't come with the language. That literacy is something else. And so those skills improve with practice, it seems. The skill of writing an essay, that's a very specific type of writing. That improves with practice. That's not something we're born with. When we learn to write, we don't know how to write essays. When we learn to speak, we don't know how to, we don't learn how to speak on the phone. So are the, there are these more specific skills, which we can also develop. And it ends up getting, you know, it ends up getting quite, uh, quite time consuming for the, uh, for the language learner. Um, but crucially, to bring out the, the relationship between these two things, you cannot practice what you don't have. So if you're talking about um, improving your, your speed of access 
of your knowledge of language. You have to have the knowledge of language there in the in the first place. You can't practice your way around that. Um, fortunately, the the things that you do to practice reading, talking to people, listening, um, also are great sources of input. So there, this is in some ways uh, why the questions get so um, so thorny because anyone can point to a technique, uh, a method and say, well, I'd use this and I got to a high level. So that means your technique is wrong. But a lot of these methods and techniques share crucial ingredients that, that make them work. It's just a question of, you know, which one is faster uh, and which one's more efficient. And I think that there are strong indications that uh, what we've been calling input-based or, or communicative methods are the kinds that, that you should at least start with. And that's all we have time for on this episode of the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed it.